0: Open Source is sponsored by listeners like you. Pitch in to keep the world's first podcast going strong. Fifteen years and counting. Find us at patreon.com slash radio Source. And thank you. I'm Christopher Leiden. This is Open Source. What can we say about our democracy when a scientific Princeton study finds that the political preferences of the average American have... Only a minuscule, near zero, statistically non significant impact on public policy. Those are the study's words. The filmmaker Astra Taylor took the cue to write one more Death of Democracy book and to make a movie about her own global search for democracy over the ages. It begins like this
1: For me, this project began with the question what is democracy? and I quickly realized it's not something that's ever actualized, but always something that is in motion, a kind of ideal we're reaching towards. But in practice, everywhere you look, democracy is in trouble. Black people have been the experiment of democracy. We have been at the expense of this so-called democracy. So what is democracy good for us? It's never been good for us. The alternative is we are ruled by a part. We are ruled by an aristocracy, we are ruled by a tyrant, we are ruled by
2: an oligarchy, we are ruled by a technocracy, we're ruled by something other than ourselves.
0: So we're still wrestling with Plato's challenge. Plato's challenge will never go away. Will never go away. The voices there were Astrid Taylor at the head of her movie called What Is Democracy? And then the poet Aja Monet, the philosopher Wendy Brown, and the lay preacher Cornell West. Welcome, Aster Taylor. We loved your movie. So many wise souls in the cast that you found out there. Who is your favorite?
1: Oh my gosh, that is not fair to ask someone to pick their favorite in a movie with 30 or 40 people. <laughs> Should but... I tell
0: you mine then? <laughs> tell me yours. The barber. The barber, out of prison, a sort of an example of mass incarceration, a fine-looking man, cutting hair, which is a trade he learned. But he says a very significant thing, a very wise thing. He said, democracy is inherently flawed because people have to act it out. And then he added, I mean, that's just good church wisdom. We are flawed beings. But then he adds Machiavelli. I don't know where he got it. But he said, mankind is a sorry breed, selfish and greedy, like parasites. The theory is brilliant, and it's worth fighting for. The problem is in the execution.
1: The problem is in the execution. It's a hard thing. It's a hard thing to govern ourselves. And and the film, you know, it. I I wouldn't say it's a a death of democracy book. I would say it's actually a a, or film. I would say no. There's so many
0: though. I lose track.
1: Yes, but it's it's you know it's actually that we need to constantly midwife democracy into being. So I would say it's a a constant rebirth kind of project. And Ellie is is you know a, a brilliant example of the capacity of people um to to think, to reflect, to um, have insight into the system that we call democracy, and you know i, I whenever I watch his scene, I think of these there's some famous comments from the conservative philosopher Edmund Burke, where he says, you know basically, democracy goes against nature because workers. How could we expect workers to govern themselves? And the, the people he says he says specifically hairdressers and he just says it with such contempt, you know. Can you imagine a system where hairdressers are given any kind of authority? And you know, I watch Ellie in that scene and I go, Yeah, this guy this guy could govern. Hmm.
0: That's the bad Burke you're quoting. I always have to stick with <laughs> the good Burke who was against the British in India Yes, that's true. And he was also- fought our empire tooth and nail. But um, what did you, what changed you? Yeah. I, I, we know you and we think of you coming out of Occupy in a certain way mm-hmm. as an artist, as a number of our favorite people did, like Molly Crabapple, for yeah. example. How did this extend your understanding?
1: Yeah. So this film really was born of Occupy Wall Street actually. So during Occupy I was working on my book The People's Platform which was debunking uh some of the claims of Silicon Valley to be democratizing everything it touched. So I was writing this political economy of social media and I was participating in Occupy. And we would walk down the street and we would chant the classic chant, "This is what democracy looks like." But there would maybe be 500 of us. <laughs> and mm. it I you know, I would always think Yes, you know, democracy is the rupture. It's the protest, it's the riot, it's these moments of of re- revolt when you say no, I'm not going to take it anymore. We need something different, but it also has to be governing. It also has to be creating democratic structures and and rules and, you know, protecting the rights of minorities and figuring out how we're going to actually produce the things we need to live in common. So, you know, I would chant that and I would think, but we need democracy to be so much more than this mm-hmm. little march. And Occupy famously had a very open spirit. The idea of an assembly where everyone would uh, everyone could participate, and it would be run by this utopian vision of consensus. And that consensus often broke down, um, you know, and, and people couldn't come to agreement. So this, you know, the, the sort of wrestling with these questions of okay, how much how much emphasis do we give to consensus versus conflict? How much emphasis do we give to spontaneity versus structure? You know, What do we mean when we say the word democracy? And so I thought it would be quite useful at the time. I thought, oh, if only there was something I could go to that would sort of explore these themes. And then, um, yeah, that evolved into this film. And mm. it, it's such a – to me, it's a rich topic for a film because what documentary does so well is it shows people. It, you know, People often denigrate talking heads. Oh, it's a talking heads documentary. But I love watching people – think and speak and I love the intimacy of getting to know someone not based on sort of seeing them in their natural state as though they've forgotten the camera so you see someone sort of getting ready in the morning or buttering their toast but that moment of truth where you go what do you believe you know who are you what do you think and so a film is a very good medium I think for for exploring democracy an
0: incredibly ambiguous word is is what I was discovering in all of us Um, I've read your book, pre-publication, the new one, with a long and strong title called Democracy May Not Exist, But We'll Miss It When It's Gone. Is it salvageable at this rather late date in our modernizing history?
1: Yeah. See, I don't, I don't know if we're at the late date. We might be just at the beginning well, I mean, just of the a wonderful democratic— politics. Yes.
0: the Yes. The imperial identity we have assumed in yes. my lifetime, and it horrifies me— uh, it, it, it's a long way back to what, for me, in my lifetime, the heroic moment of the idea of democracy was Gene McCarthy, mm-hmm. 1967, 50 years ago, coming out of a Senate Foreign Relations Committee hearing in which Lyndon Johnson, secretary said, said, basically, he can do exactly what he wants in Vietnam. McCarthy came right out of that room and said, we've got to take this to the people. Mm-hmm. I'll run in New Hampshire. And he did. And he chased Lyndon Johnson out of office on that yes or no vote really of course the war tragically went on for seven more years but at least democracy was there to draw a line
1: well it's interesting when I mean, democracy and war and imperialism is is they, these are these are two things that are hard to disentangle going all the way back to the ancient athenians right so this you know the the mythic birthplace of western democracy was also this imperial military power so democracy has been Both, you know, a sort of beautiful ideal and a a corrupt practice from its very beginnings. So um, what do you mean,
0: Astro, saying your question, we'll miss it when it's gone? What will you miss?
1: Yeah, what do I miss? So, you know, I'm trying to get at the the fact that we don't have a democracy. So as Aja Monet said very beautifully in that sequence that you played, you know, democracy for whom? Right. So many black people that I spoke to while making this film were basically like, no, we don't have a democracy. We've never had a democracy. This is a country founded on the idea that uh, the labor of black people could be ruthlessly exploited. And the Constitution says, you know, we're three fifths of a person. Um, so, yeah, we've never. That's why democracy may not exist. This doesn't qualify as a democracy. In fact, studies show we're an oligarchy. And yet we've made democratic progress. We have made gains, and we shouldn't take those for granted. And they can also be eroded. They can, um, you know, we can go backwards. And so I'm trying to, you know, have that tension in the title of the book, mm-hmm. you know, that democratic progress is real and that, yes, the system we have isn't perfect, and that is something we have to keep working on.
0: I will miss the democratic personality. I mean, George Carlin, for mm-hmm. example. I mean, the extraordinary people... Who were ordinary yesterday, yeah. Shirley Chisholm, for example i i don't know if I dare say Jackie Robinson, who rose above himself, born a hundred years ago this week, but uh, there are many things I think of yard sales, what's more democratic, or oh, that a conversation at the dump, uh, but also louis brandeis, abraham lincoln's language. these things keep reminding us that yeah, everybody's in this game, yeah at least as a Mm-hmm. As a working ideal well
1: and that is you know the idea of democracy is that the people rule and who the people are is up for debate how how we rule is is also um something that we have to determine together, but you know there are no qualifications that 's why critics of democracy don't like it right it 's like wow you don't okay you don't have to have any sort of knowledge or credentials you don't have to have a baseline of wealth, you know you don 't have to be the right type of person you know and and that's that's what scares people about democracy, but it 's also what makes it interesting. And this film was a wonderful excuse for me to go and talk to people from all walks of life. And the process of that, of actually sitting down with people and talking to them, made me more of a small-D Democrat.
0: I love the woman in Greece who introduced the notion, I, I thought I'd made this up, but that you could fill the, the ancient Greeks, the Athenian yeah. Greeks filled most of the key jobs by random lottery. Yeah. You're going you're to run the welfare department, Astra.
1: Well, it's interesting, because we think we take for granted the baseline of democracy today. We just think it's elections, right? And that is that in fact, I think the u n even defines democracy as periodic elections free and fair. And uh, so the film throws a wrench in that and it says, well, why? Why do we assume that democracy right. is an election every four years? And in fact, the ancient Greeks thought that that was very aristocratic because rich people, you know, the well, well-born and the well-spoken, the charismatic, you know, had a tendency to win. So they used this very complicated system of, of lottery, of sortition, to, to recruit regular people to run every facet of the society except for two. Sortition or
0: sortation?
1: Sortition, I think.
0: I was reminded Daniel Patrick Moynihan said once he'd rather pick key government officials out of the New York phone book or the Chicago Mm -hmm. phone book than out of the Harvard Faculty Club. And I I know what he meant. The great Trinidadian writer C.L.R. James said, every cook can govern. There's a profound truth in that. And you don't raise funds. Yeah, you don't owe anybody. Mm-hmm. You were just picked to do that mm-hmm. job. But well, think people.
1: about it. Uh, it's interesting to think about it today because you know, AOC, the wonderful AOC, amen, is getting amen. perfect she's example. getting all this pushback, and and you know, conservatives are saying you're just a bartender. But you know, she, she's turning to be a very, she's turning out to be a very powerful uh, uh, politician. I'll say, and and yet.
0: Better that she has been a bartender. That's an also, she's also a Boston University graduate and, a, and an immensely distinguished uh, young public servant with all that public spirit, but that's, that's what we mean. Astrid Taylor is our guest. What is Democracy? Is her a Movie? Coming up, the emerging English authority on politics, David Runciman. He's dry-eyed about the decline of democracy. It's not quite dead, he says, just deep in a midlife crisis. This is Open Source. David Runciman teaches politics at Cambridge University. He is in that funeral procession of authors with his own title called How Democracy Ends. But the Runciman style is grimly original. He thinks the species may in fact be getting healthier and the old forms of election to office will survive. It's everything else in between, the inner logic of power that is being transformed. David Runciman forecasts at the end of his book that in 2053, which is nine presidential elections into the future in the United States, a Chinese-American President Lee Li, L.I., will be sworn in, inaugurated right on schedule, though his control of nuclear weapons will have been stripped from his office and handed to a committee of technicians. President Lee's electoral coalition was stay-at-homes, living on their meager universal basic income, and travelers going state to state looking for part-time work.
2: President Lee, he gets elected fairly, but in a system where the parties have more or less gone, the coalitions are transient, the generation gap is the big division in politics, the dollar has gone and been replaced by Bitcoin, work has gone, you've got the stay-at-homes and the travelers the society would seem unrecognizable to us, and there is a president getting inaugurated. That, to me, is a more plausible future than the one that people imagine, which is democracy has gone, but society is the same.
0: A sort of Potemkin democracy, a facade. Yeah,
2: exactly. Lovely. And we have it halfway already, don't we? Exactly. I mean, that's the point. It's it's a story that we're in the middle of. We're not at the end. We may be somewhere near the beginning of the end. But we're in that moment now, not just in the United States, not just in Britain with Brexit, many democracies where people are kind of waiting for the coup de grace, the denouement, the moment where kind of it all falls apart. I don't think it's falling apart. I think it's just frozen and it can stay frozen like this and slowly get emptier. And yet you'll have charismatic politicians. I think I want to think of President Lee as having some things going for him. You know, he's probably pretty good on the campaign trail, mastered whatever the new media is then, he's the king of whatever the second half of the 21st century version of Twitter is, politics will still have life to it. It'll just be hollow.
0: What marks the writer of this book is a terrific, brave anti-sentimentality. You're not moaning about the loss of town meetings in small places or even the presidential debates.
2: I've sat through quite a few presidential debates and it's not even my president. I don't feel like my life would be enormously worse without them. And also, yeah, you're right. I think I tried to get a kind of tone of realism in this. There is a, a sentimentality around democracy, but also a kind of clinging on to what we know, possibly past the point when it's doing us any good. I definitely don't want to get rid of democracy. I still say it's got virtues that make it the best system that we can think of. And we can hold on to that package long past the point where it stopped working.
0: Well before 2053, David Runciman, you picture a Pax Technica having overtaken and replaced Pax Americana. Just how did that happen?
2: There is a version of the future where the order of the globe, what kind of holds the whole system together, is not democratic at all. It's technical. It's it's a technocracy at the global level. You know, we are at the at the very height of our world, ruled by internet engineers and yet within that landscape there is the possibility of all kinds of new forms of democracy new forms of empowerment we could live in a world that is not democratic and is also more democratic at the same time i mean it's the rival vision to the president lee vision where it's the potemkin village and it's just it's the old forms with nothing behind them there is a possible future which doesn't represent the end of democracy because there's flourishing democratic life in it. And yet, compared to what we have now, we've lost control over the architecture. I would say that's more likely than a return to fascism. You quote a
0: software engineer at Amazon. Maybe you made him up.
2: Uh, No, no, I found him on the internet. I can't have made him up.
0: (laughs) (laughs) He must be real. (laughs) um, You quote him saying, year after year, the average person is becoming more stupid and the politicians more deceptive. On the other hand, computers are becoming more intelligent every year. Eventually, it's going to be wiser to let them take the decisions and govern us.
2: Yeah, so that's the ultimate technocrat's vision. I don't know about you, but I have met people who work in tech who think like that and and talk like that openly, that in the end they think democracy is a stupid system, um, and it empowers the stupid. And we're increasingly moving to a world where knowledge and information will rule, and that will belong to machines. You say Mark Zuckerberg's more dangerous
0: than Trump. Jaron Lanier, a very interesting inside critic of tech, says, no, the, the, the Zuckerberg algorithms which promote paranoia, irritability, outrage, are what created Trump
2: could be yeah i I, so i don't think that zuckerberg or anyone else designed it to produce this outcome but i do think that the outcome doesn't happen without these new forms of communication and like you say of outrage i mean what trump is the master of even more than he's the master of outrage he's the master of holding people's attention and you know, this is, as it's been described, an attention economy. He and Trump are in the same business. They're in the attention-seeking business. And the point of this technology is that it's also its designed to be addictive. And Trump, in a weird way, has set up his politics to be addictive. We can't turn off. So they're hand-in-hand, hand, at least. They didn't design it to come out like this together. But they're kind of locked in a dance of death together.
0: Back to the big themes in your book, David Runciman. The biggest might just be... Stop all the talk about Weimar. This is not Hitler coming our way. It's something quite different. Timothy Snyder may be the real adversary here in your book. Make that argument that we've been worrying too much about tyranny.
2: So, yeah, I mean, I think essentially it's the argument that this is not the 1930s. And I see why people think that, because it's we always look for an example that we we recognize our symptoms and their symptoms. And so we read off that the end, the same result. But also it's that feeling that we want answers, we want decisive answers. And what the 1930s gives you is a picture of democracy failing in a way that no one can doubt it. No one can argue, come 1939, that democracy is in good health. And so we're in that moment where we want that kind of closure, but it's not coming. 1930s Germany was a society of... Angry young men, all of them suffering post-traumatic stress disorder, and many of them with guns. Now, that does not describe contemporary Europe or the contemporary United States. We are elderly societies. In Europe, we don't have guns. In the United States, people have guns, but there aren't enough young men to make the difference. And Greece today has been through a trauma in economic terms as bad as the Great Depression. 50% youth unemployment Why does 50% youth unemployment not lead to the collapse of democracy, to fascism, in a country that has a fascist party in parliament? Because there aren't any young people in Greece. If you want to find an example of where this is heading, Japan is closer to the future than Weimar Germany. Explain. Elderly societies frightened Uh, of immigration waiting for the robots. Hmm. Explain
0: what looks from here like a complete breakdown in Brexit England. Not only a probably bad choice, but... Three years of utter fecklessness in
2: recovering. Literally, as we speak, I'm watching Parliament debate this for the, I don't know how manyth time, failing to come to a resolution. Everybody knows what they don't want. No one knows what they do want. And yet it's one of those things, people in Britain, you know, we're in this confused state because we know our politics has failed. It's not working at the most fundamental level. We have a Parliament that decides things and then cannot act on its own decisions. We have parties that don't dare call an election, which they could do because they're frightened of the voters, and yet they can't govern. It looks like a failure and yet nothing's really happened. So it's like, it's not like a, you know, the breakdown of a society. We're not on the brink of civil collapse or civil war. It's just a political We're, class, you mean? The, the, the political system is just stuck. It's kind of this perfect, it's not a perfect storm. It's like it's frozen in place so nothing can move because everything locks everything else down.
0: Why are you not catatonic,
2: David Runciman, or even (laughs) uh, running in circles, screaming and shouting? To live in a country that's going through this kind of trauma, no one's – there's a certain amount of anger, but there's more a kind of weary despair, but we keep nagging away at it. And I study and write about politics for a living, so almost everyone I meet asks me what's going to happen, and I say I don't know, and they just give me a look of kind of – yeah, no one knows –
0: David Runciman, looking forward, the machines have recovered into the 21st century. What about the people when all of this is being run by robots?
2: <laughs> How are the people going to do? Yeah, family life, village life, street life, cultural life. I mean, life. I think, as in so many things, we think the questions are kind of either or questions. Like, it's you know, either we're going to recover or this thing is falling apart. And I think the future is wide open. And I think it's almost certainly going to be a future where we're going to be surprised by the variety of human experience. Some of it's going to be bad, some of it's going to be good, but it's going to be much, much less one thing or the other. Around the world, there are human beings being born now who are going to have experiences that are unimaginably better than their forebears, uh, especially in places that have lived through history with poverty. But I think in the West... In ageing societies, where we sort of you know, we're not having enough children to replace ourselves, where we're frightened of immigration as we get older, our lives are going to become shrunken and thinner in various ways. And I am instinctively on this question, I think a pessimist. I think the human experience there'll be more variety in it, but on some of the basics of community and solidarity, it's it's going to be narrower. That
0: was David Runciman who teaches at Cambridge and writes and podcasts from the London Review of Books. Astrid Taylor of the movie What is Democracy? As he speaks, I'm wondering, what is your account of this unbelievable collapse in order, in dignity, in authority Mm -hmm. of what we used to think was the the ruling nation-states of the world.
1: Yeah, I mean, I think we have to say in crisis lies opportunity, right? But how did it happen? How did it happen? Brexit. Brexit. Insanity. So much of this is about the... it's a crisis of capitalism. We have a system where wealth is so con- concentrated. Democracy, liberal democracy, is not living up to its promises, um, and uh, and so I think we are in a moment of of breakdown or breakthrough. I mean, you know, but it's it's I I don't believe that the picture is as, as bleak as David Runciman uh, does. You bleak.
0: Know, it is bleak. We're in our dotage. So is democracy? It's all over. But the. (laughs) I mean, so one thing you
1: know, I I, I wrote my book, The People's Platform, which is about technology and and the rise of these tech behemoths, right? And the incredible power of these uh, new global monopolies. And yet, what we're seeing right now, while there are indeed some engineers who think we should hand over all decision making to the machines, what we also saw was a walkout by Google workers, organized in four days, twenty thousand engineers. Wanting to work for a company that lives up to the motto, don't be evil, and that actually enhances democracy instead of sabotaging it. That's a tremendous, encouraging development. The problems that we're facing are not simply technical you know uh just like they're not they're they're economic um and you know these these systems you know it's quite tempting at this moment to place a lot of blame in social media and these algorithms that are indeed you know designed to be addictive and will push even divisive and horrible content to the front of our news feeds but again it's that's the business model, right? We have a business model based on clicks. It's not the it's not the technology itself. I, um, I got
0: a different. Yeah, uh, Jaron Lanier made a big impression on me. Mm-hmm. The problem is in the software. It's in the algorithms, on purpose, in the sense that it's designed from a Google, Facebook, selling, provoking standpoint to to uh, catch your attention, make you fight mm-hmm. back, but it seeds a, a kind of induced discontent, outrage, anger self-pity, all these extraordinary, uh, pathetic characters like Trump in his helplessness taking power by people who identify with those gestures. I I think it's a major gap in the programming.
1: But it's a gap in the programming based on the business model. So I think there's, you know, again, it's not the technology, it's it's the uh, incentives driving it. You know, in this film, I people often ask me afterwards well why didn't you talk about the media and that's because i think that you know the the media system we have is is a symptom not the driving force Amen. of the crisis but- of our democracy and look go back to plato go back to the republic why did he mistrust democracy because it marginalized the wise and people with their unruly passions and their and their idiocies and their um misinformation right their fake news um would you know, get swept up by these demagogues. So these are these are you know, there are human problems and um and, and those are things we have to grapple with. But I think pinning I think right now we we pin too much of the blame on on social media and, and technology. Well maybe. I yeah. think we pin it's not that we
0: you can't pin too much blame on Trump in a way, but it long precedes him. And somebody's observed, and I agree, we're we're living in a well before Trump Through the uh, George Bush years, certainly, a post-democratic stage, and a selected president, not an elected president. But it's something out of Aldous Huxley's Brave New World. Freedom being slowly eaten alive by technological change and this insatiable public hunger for entertainment. Mm -hmm. It's Neil Postman amusing amusing ourselves ourselves to death. People laughing off (laughs) the awareness that they're being oppressed embracing the machines that undo their capacities to think. Yes,
1: but also we have an amazing revival. So he ended on the note, a lack of solidarity. We're seeing a revival of, of solidarity. So, for example, how have people responded overall, if you look at the polls, to you know, Trump's social media tweets about building a wall? We've actually seen that, that Americans are more sympathetic to immigration than they have been in a long time. We're seeing a revival among young people not... Of a turn to fascism, but actually a revival of democratic socialism young we've seen twenty thousand marches and protests organized since Trump took office, so we're actually seeing you know a heartening revival of democratic spirit. we're seeing people running for office who never would have thought of doing that a few years ago. So speaking of
0: revival and David Runciman's vision makes you wonder what if it were not robots coming to power? What if it were smart futurists, sophisticated newcomers to the power game? who were reimagining politics in the interests of unserved people. That roughly describes what's been going on for most of this dec- decade in Mississippi's mostly African-American capital city, Jackson. Sort of improvised but strategic drive toward a modern reconstruction. It took root in 2013, landslide election of a black lawyer with revolutionary ambitions in black empowerment, Mayor Chokwe Lomomba. He died in office of heart failure, but his son Chokwe Antar succeeded him, and his right hand at the staff of Okali Akuno carries the standard for a movement called Cooperation Jackson for the city and for a swath of mostly black counties all around it. We'll barely get started before the break, uh, Kali. I'm so glad you're here. Uh, are we talking about a, a second Reconstruction or a new a new founding, a reinvention of democracy?
3: Uh, it's a combination of both, actually. Um, you know, we we cannot and should not uh, forget the past and the foundation that we stand on uh, and understanding that history. And, and Mississippi is one of the, the epicenters of uh, the restoration government, should we, we, we forget. We have to learn from that history, uh, and we have to learn from both the second and first reconstructions, I think, to kind of really point a way forward on how do you really build uh, multiracial and multi-class kind of alliances to Mm. to actually create uh, a genuine participatory democracy. Uh, If you forget those lessons, uh, then you wind up with the kind of uh, fascist, racist politics that we see resurging on the scene now of which Trump is just kind of a symptom of. So uh, we can't forget the past nor the lessons of the past. It's very dangerous for us.
0: Uh, we're gonna develop this much more fully after the break. Um, but I want to ask you when we get started, I mean, how do you sort out the political project here and the economic goal and the economic obstacles? This is open source. Astra Taylor asks, what is democracy in her film opening tomorrow night at the Brattle Theater in Harvard Square? Kali Akuno has been answering the question from, shall we say, an inventor's or a designer's angle on the ground in Jackson, Mississippi, which was, once upon a slave time, one of the richest cities in America. Now deindustrialized and deinvested. You're fighting, among other things, this age of disposability, Kali Akuno for a lot of very able, skilled Black people in Jackson, mm-hmm. Mississippi. How goes it?
3: Mm-hmm. Well, it's a it's a moving target. It's an experiment in motion. Uh, you know, with a few critical successes here and there, uh, but we have a long way to go uh, to get to the promised land, as we would say down here.
0: Introduce uh, the but we're the, in for the fight. Introduce the idea of Chokwe Lamumba.
3: Uh, well, it was a, the the broader ideas I wouldn't attribute to one person, uh, because these are these were concepts and ideas, you know, really revolving around uh, three core principles of of self reliance, self respect, and self determination hmm. that really been passed on in the Black liberation struggle and the movement uh, for generations. And the the struggle has always been, or the quest for each generation is, you know, how do you actually make those things manifest in the space, time, and conditions that you are in, right? Because things uh, don't stay static. They change. uh, Relations change. Power relations change, um, sometimes for the better, sometimes for the worse. And so how do you use the tools that you have, you know, to be creative in your own space and find a way to kind of elicit the broadest participation, participation possible, uh, to bring in all the collective energy, creativity, uh, resources uh, that are at your disposal within your community, and come up with a common vision to then move that forward. And uh, Chokwe was a master of that. I mean, a master. I was was an honor to work with him over the years and learn from him, and, and trying to carry that forward and, and pass on that torches, as I would say, he passed on to me and many others, and we're trying to pass on to you know those. Uh, coming behind us. Speak of the
0: obstacles in, in in human nature, but also in elite manipulations, but also racism and also capitalism. I mean, oh yes. the powers of Mississippi have designs on on Jackson, and it's not your people.
3: No, it's not. Uh, that that is very. They're very candid about that. Uh, one of the things that we've been joking. And we'll bring you all into this joke uh, that uh, in uh, 2016, uh, that fateful November night when Trump uh, won the presidency, we kind of had a running joke that we still keep alive was, you know, telling everybody in the country, welcome to Mississippi, because
2: uh,
3: this type of politics has been commonplace here for well over a century. Uh, But I think when we joke, we, we try to bring out that you have to look deep at the history of the social struggles in Mississippi to see that uh, despite the many obstacles that they put in our way, um, capitalism, patriarchy, you know, uh, you name it, there's a tons of different systems of oppression that are, you know, kind of very deliberately in our path uh, that we have to plow through and work our way around when, when the situation suits itself. But here, I mean, Jackson, just so the audience know, Jackson is the capital of the state of Mississippi. It's roughly 200,000 people. It's Mm 80 percent, over 80 percent black. Uh, We would say in in concrete figures that the real unemployment in our community is closer to 50 percent rather than the 12 percent you're going to find in the statistics.
0: What's keeping them alive? There
3: are tons. What's keeping them alive is you have a very informal uh, solidarity economy. Uh, you you don't exist here without family. You don't exist here without network. And so that, those are very deeply entrenched and still alive here in the ways that I don't think you find in other areas of the country. And I'm not mm-hmm. trying to exaggerate that, uh, but having lived in California, uh, in, in Seattle, Washington, um, other places in Atlanta, Georgia, uh, you just don't find that level of organic community It still feels very much like the 70s and the 60s here in that regard. And in some of the ways that you see it expressed, typically in almost any working class family, you'll find three generations uh, within the same household. And that's mm. it's a reflection in part in this modern day era of uh, people's kind of class background, income level, mm. that people mm. are, are having to live in those tight-knit units. But that brings a certain level of stability. It brings a yep. certain level of cultural continuity. And that enables a certain type of resistance that you just don't find when folks are isolated and fragmented we still and have living f- individuated lives.
0: We still have a few family three-deckers in Boston, uh, you know, young families, parents, grandparents on three three floors, and it works. Mm-hmm. Explain exactly what the cooperative device does for you. And I want Astro Taylor to review it. Why cooperative and what does it mean?
3: The thing that we are trying to do uh, with the cooperatives, first and foremost, uh, is democratize the place where most of us spend half of our lives. When you think about that, as an adult, you spend more, some of us these days, far more than half of our life working. And in most work environments, you really have no say so over <laughs> the hours the wages or the conditions under which you work mm-hmm. and so the, the where you spend most of your time is the least democratic space in this society and so we are trying to flip that because you know control over our bodies is is and over our time and over how our bodies and time are utilized that has been at the core of of the black liberation struggle as we've come out of chattel slavery and still been trying to break those bonds that have been imposed upon us since uh, the so-called emancipation. So for us, this form was a natural way to say, how do we better, how can we democratize the, the workplace and submit it to our kind of direct collective control? And that means managing it, you know, and determining uh, who does what, why they do it, uh, how they acquire the skills to, 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 to move into different areas of work that, that women may have been excluded from or Blacks have been excluded from. And then, how do we distribute the resources, you know, the the profits that we produce from our activities to make sure that we live better quality lives? Astra what's, what's your
0: your experience, Astra, with cooperatives as a device?
1: I mean, I think you know, I'm so happy to to be speaking to Callie because he's really someone I admire who's engaged in this the challenge, which is I think the challenge of this century, which is how do you democratize the economy? And cooperatives absolutely have to be a part of that. And, um, and in fact, one features really prominently in, in my film, What is Democracy? I go to this, uh, one of the last textile factories in North Carolina called Opportunity Threads. And why is it the only remaining textile factory when the whole industry has been decimated by NAFTA? Because it's run by Guatemalan immigrants yes. who own it, run it collectively, share the profits— you know aren't working for the boss and aren't about to sell their own jobs overseas <laughs> to to get rid of themselves to lower costs i think the challenge though for cooperatives and it's always been thus i mean people have dreamt of a cooperative commonwealth and and built cooperative movements going back to the reconstruction era and the challenge is you know access to capital so that you can invest so you can grow um but i think they provide a really uh important example of because you know the the thing is that it's workers who generate the wealth. Pe- they just don't get to keep it. And in a cooperative right. system, people do, right? The profits go back to the community, to the people who are actually creating value, um, instead of being sucked up by, by uh, the owners or financial institutions that are charging them predatory rates. So it's got to be part of the solution, the democratic solution moving forward.
0: Your turn, Kelly Acuno.
3: I mean, is that... I, I, that is at the heart of it. I mean that is at the heart of it. Here, you ask more about the conditions. Let me let me lay it out to you. Just one thing that that does demonstrate the challenge, and it's something that we're trying to figure out. It's just access to capital, right? Access mm. to resources, and where the aspects of of you know racism, white supremacy, really plays out here in our direct lives is not having access to the local banking institutions in town. They mm. basically will not open up their doors to our membership, basically, in uh, in large part, even when we have quote unquote collateral to put up, they find it in many respects, for one reason or another, not sufficient. Right? Or there's somebody in your in your collective or in your cooperative who has a, a you know bad credit, so you're all denied, even though one of you could particularly potentially, on paper at least, carry the day to move certain things forward. And this is just. Uh, uh, an institutional reflection of just how we're blocked and barred Mm -hmm. from really being able to get kind of gain the resources we need to expand. So that is one of the the critical struggles. There are plenty of ways around it, in my view. Now they're going to take organizing, they're going to take some work and they're going to take some struggle, I think to get us there. But one of the critical things I think we need to be pushing for, particularly in this day and age is public banking institutions. Hmm. Uh, Because we're going to have to submit that aspect. We're going to have to democratize finance and bring it under heel and control. Because particularly, I know when I came on, I heard you talking about some of the modern algorithms and and the technology. Well, finance in part should be kind of really looked at as a technology. And how do we democratize this technology to make sure it is serving us and we are not serving it and it is not disciplining us to kind of the, this race to the bottom, which we've right. basically been in on a global scale of the last 30 40 years.
0: Kelly Okuno, I want to ask, what is the Jackson, Mississippi equivalent of Guatemalans making it in North Carolina textiles? I mean, what would the version of your version of that be? What industry? What-
3: our nearest version right now, just in terms of what we're doing, I would say would be our our, our green team. Uh, it is the most up and, and developed cooperative that we have, uh, but we're nowhere near where they're at. And we take great inspiration and we've been studying them for years. They've been at it a little bit longer uh, than, than we have. Uh, but I think they point the way, uh, as was illustrated, you know, how do you survive uh, the, the kind of the onslaughts of global capitalism and the global move? And I think there is the epitome of first being in solidarity with each other. And finding out to organize your time, your labor, your resources in a way that works for everybody that it will enable you in part to not only compete, but to create an alternative uh, uh, market and an alternative set of practices that will keep you alive and in the system where people create and find other value in you yeah. uh, and in your work. Yeah, yeah. I mean,
1: what I mean, what's fascinating about opportunity threads in that community, too, is that because they, they come from Guatemala, which, of course, was destabilized in the coup the you know u s led coup in nineteen fifty four so they're you know indigenous they come from a culture where cooperation was was part of their daily practice There's a really interesting book called the Maya of Morganton that's about their community and you know and how they um had the sort of knowledge to uh, and, and commitment to working cooperatively. But now they are a role model an example to people all over the place. So I think we do have to study these examples and learn from them. And, I, and the issue of democratizing finance, I think, is so key, which is why when I'm not a filmmaker, I organize with a group that I co-founded called The Debt Collective that looks exactly mm. at these issues of predatory finance and asks, how can we stop predatory lending and have socially productive credit? Because debt is a theme of the film. Because debt has been used as an anti-democratic tool Look at the way after slavery, sharecroppers were indebted. Look at what happened to Haiti after the French Revolution, right? France was like, okay, you owe us, you know, uh, hundreds of They're millions of dollars, right? Yesterday. Look at uh, look at the sovereign debt crisis in Greece, which is also part of the film. So this issue, you know, money isn't neutral, <laughs> not just about like the rich and the poor, but actually the, the way finance is structured needs to be reimagined and um and, and we need experiments like what's happening in Jackson. What Is would that it take? helping to show the way?
0: I'm wondering, Kelly, what would it take for a, an investor to see the obvious promise in what you're doing? As a social investment, but also even maybe to get his money back?
3: Well, for us, we try to, we are very explicit and hard nosed about how we relate to investment, uh, in part because of our history. And we try to make it clear. Look, we're looking for a long-term partnership mm-hmm. and someone who's interested in in things other than just monetary return. Like, what is your return in helping the community grow? What is your your return going to look like in terms of, of regenerating the actual ecological systems, which is the main concern uh, of ours. Uh, and Putting your money in and expecting a five percent return, etc. Mm-hmm. Like if that is your your frame of reference, uh we will struggle a little bit longer and find some other ways to do uh finance, because we're trying to break uh many of those kind of habits and outlooks around what a return actually looks like. I got a and question. If you're going to be a partner, we need you to look at the world in a different through different eyes and a different lens.
0: Both of you consider this. To me, Astrid Taylor, the moral in your movie, and it's ambiguous, but is that democracy is very concrete and is very local. It's almost anything that supports the sense of human dignity, a job, a house, something for the family, all of which makes Cooperation Jackson a very attractive, you know, focus of interest. Um, it's what the refugees in your film from Guatemala and Syria speak of when it's gone. Um, Aren't these ideal spaces what Kali is speaking about for rebuilding democracy on the ground?
1: Yeah, and it, you know democracy has to be built by human beings. We have to build it face to face and that's and so I think the question though is how We contend with these massive global forces, right, because we live in a world of international markets and Mm -hmm. and international finance. And, you know, the paradox is that we have to be strongly rooted if we're going to be able to challenge the larger system and dismantle it. So I think the thing is we have to, you know, it's the cliche, right? We have to think global and act local. I know it's a bumper sticker, but it's also sort of true.
0: Kali Akuno, I wonder, what, what is your definition of democracy?
3: Well, more than a definition, I think, you know, democracy is a cultural act and it has to be a cultural act. Yeah, thank you. Um, and there has to be support in kind of cultural worldviews, paradigms that I think we have to fit in. And the thing that we are always keen to know to anybody who comes to, to visit us and work with us, we took this or kind of stole this, if you would, from from Mondragon, where they say from, you know, uh, from Mondragon, the Mondragon cooperatives in Spain. They have a saying, ah. this is not heaven and we're not angels. And so our <laughs> our thing is to say, hey, uh, we have never lived in a democracy. Mm-hmm. And so we are learning to be democratic. So you can't make certain assumptions about what it is. Because we have to kind of unlearn a lot of the the very individualistic, Mm -hmm. uh, materialistic aspects of how we relate to each other and been socialized to relate to each other if we're going to be truly democratic. And that is not something that most of us, or I would say almost virtually none of us in the United States, have directly experienced except for maybe in small, isolated collectives or pockets. So to create a broader piece is going to take a long-term cultural shift so that you have a culture that expresses itself democratically in its day-to-day functions, not just, you know, uh, uh, pressing a lever or, or hitting the chad every two or every four years uh, to kind of dictate who's going to kind of lord over you for the next two or four years. I like it's, that. It's are, much deeper than that. It has to be deeper than that.
0: There are a lot of good lines potting up here. This isn't heaven and we're not angels. Sounds like your barber, Astra, who was saying uh, the problem with the idea is that it has to be executed by people.
1: Yeah, but that's also the the potential of it. And I think the thing is, you know, I think I think Kali's exactly right. We we praise this word democracy in our society, you know, or politicians and the powerful say it all the time, but it's something that, that Americans do very little of. And I think that's that's part of why we struggle to define it.
0: Thank you, Astrid Taylor. Thank you, David Runciman and Kali Akuno. Our show this week was produced by Conor Gillies, Rebecca Panovka, the artist Susan Coyne engineer George Hicks. Mary McGrath is our randomly selected representative. I'm Christopher Lydon. Join us next time. Join us every time on Open Source.